Hi, this is Steve. This week on The Cinephiles, we continue the month of Cain with part two of our deep dive into the 1941 Orson Welles classic. This is when things get dark for Mr. Charles Foster Cain, when the promise and idealism of youth gives way to obsession, humiliation, and, in my opinion, an almost all-encompassing loneliness. How could a man so talented and brilliant with all the resources of one of the world's great fortunes come to such an end? And how can a first-time filmmaker capture that descent with techniques so stunningly original and so perfectly executed that the rest of the filmmaking world would spend decades catching up? And how is it possible that this amazing film was almost destroyed before the public could see a single frame? Well, to find out, you'll have to tune in this Friday for part two of Citizen Kane on The Cinephiles. I see. It's you that this is being done to. It's not me at all. Not what it means to me. I can't do this to you. Oh, yes, I can. Hello and welcome once again to The Cinephiles, where each week we enter the world of a great film. We explore its themes, the history, the filmmaking, and the influence it has on us today. My name is Steve Morris. I'm a filmmaker and directing instructor in Los Angeles, California. Hello, everyone. My name is John Roke. I'm a voiceover actor, host, producer, writer, and numerous other things here in Los Angeles, California. Uh, And uh, welcome to part two. Yep. We're going to jump right into part two of Citizen Kane. This is our first two-parter, yeah. and it is because this film is just too big, and there is so much stuff to talk about in every scene. Yeah, so if you didn't listen to our part one, stop right now, go to part one from last week, listen to that, and then pick us back up again where we're starting here. And where we are starting is that Charles Foster Kane has just made the extremely self-destructive choice to fight Jim Geddes and allow his affair with Susan Alexander to be exposed. Yeah. And Jim Geddes and Emily have walked away from the building where we see it turn into the newspaper that shows that Kane was caught in Love Nest with, quote, Singer. Sing, quote, yeah. Singer. That's the one. Jed Leland looks at the newspaper. What does he do? Walks right into a bar. Walks right into a bar. Starts to drink. Get the sense he's going to spend a lot of time in bars. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And we go to, and this is just a great moment of Bernstein looking at two different choices of headlines. Yeah. And one is Kane elected governor, and the other one is fraud at polls. Still happening nowadays. Still Depending happening. on what uh, yeah. news channel you like to watch. There's a lot of fake news out there. I'm not saying who's putting it out. <laughs> There's a lot of it. Yeah. Uh, and Leland shows up drunk. I'm drunk. Well, if you got drunk to talk to me about... Miss Alexander, don't bother. I'm not interested. I've set back the sacred cause of reform. Is that it? All right. And now we have, in fact, dug a hole in the floor, and the camera is down at the floor level. You can actually see the floor, and the figures of Leland and Kane are going to tower yeah. over us. Which is incredible, because no... And for those of you who are, who are film students, like, or love films, like this shot had never been done in the history of film yeah this shot from the floor up had never been done in the history of film wells wanted to do it came up with it on set ruth warwick was saying this in her behind the scenes interviews and she said they took an axe and they cut through the wood dug down into the floor dug dirt into the floor and then shot from below and there is pictures 
in certain books of Toland in, in the, the hole, in yeah. the hole yeah, with, with Wells and the camera and what they're shooting there in that scene. Well, what's funny is, and this is a sign of, of sort of bad planning in the boy genius, because of course, yeah. if you knew you were going to do that ahead of time, you just built the set five feet off the ground. <laughs> but if you've already built the set on the ground yeah. and then Wells comes along and says, no, no, I want the camera lower, no lower, no lower, yeah. then this is how you end up cutting a hole in the floor. True, true. And you get this remarkable remarkable shot yeah and leland just lays into him it's obvious the people prefer jim gettys to me you talk about the people as though you own them so they belong to you goodness as long as i can remember you've talked about giving the people their rights as if you can make them a present of liberty again we go back to this he just left you a tip that's a great line that's a mankowitz line yeah fucking know that's a mankowitz line because what Wells, what Kane did in that moment by choosing Susan Alexander, by not swallowing his pride, was he sacrificed all these other principles and these movements and these yep. things that the him and Leland and other people had had really been pushing throughout uh, uh, the city. Yeah. And Leland, I think, really believed in those yeah. things. Really, really cared about them. He's, um, he comes to believe in them, right? The smirking funny guy whatever comes to become a principled person yeah interesting i think he definitely is Mm. and and it's interesting the way this movie frames it in this movie the giver has the power yeah that's what giving is about really it's about control and power um and i i find it really interesting that kane says oh i'll get drunk too and leland says you never get drunk Mm -hmm. yeah he drinks right but he doesn't get drunk no because he's always in control right um, and he says, maybe you're going to move to Africa or something and lord it over the monkeys. And and Kane's response is, well, there'll be probably a few of them to tell me when I'm going what when I'm going wrong. And Leland's response is, you may not always be so lucky. <laughs> he's already telling him he's leaving him. Yeah, you know. Yeah. And, and this is this is so important because without the Jed Leland's, we see where Kane's going to go. Yeah. You know. Yeah. He needs people to tell him he's wrong. Well, I think Leland is giving him the opportunity, yeah. too, by yelling at him, by confronting him, by doing all these things. He's giving Kane the chance to be like, you're right. I'm sorry. I made a mistake. I'm going to figure this out. Don't leave. Stay with me. But that's not in his nature, man. Yeah. It's not in his no. nature. Well, and because Leland says you want to persuade people that you love them so much that they ought to love you back. Right. Ought to love you back. They ought to love you That back. it's owed Yep. Yeah. This is a lesson I had to learn myself, which is so funny. This is one of my favorite films, but sometimes things don't hit you because you, you're just lost in your own shit. But this idea that, oh, I did this for you, so you owe me. Right. Like, I, I sacrificed or I did this or whatever out of love for you. You owe me that back. And that's no, not, it's how not how it works. works. It's not how it works. Man, that was one of the hardest lessons. And I just learned it like in the last few years. It is, Steve, one of the most life-changing lessons I've ever uh, experienced or had to go through. And just like Wells, it was born from a deep insecurity. If I can do all these things, then you owe me. If you owe me, then I've got you. Then I can right. count on your love rather than it being a fluid thing. Well, and it's a it's security. some degree and control. Right, control. You know, is that and and, and it's not is that on a some a fundamental level love is about being vulnerable yes it's about not being in control right and and, and it's it, in some ways we could say this movie which i had never really thought about that much but it's really a discourse on the nature of love absolutely what what is it and what is love mm-hmm. and clearly kane doesn't know what it is no you know he has no experience with what love is is that he's been never taught and he's behaving in ways that he believes are what love is mm-hmm. by being generous with people and giving. Mm-hmm. But 
he's not being generous of his soul and his spirit. He's not exposing his own vulnerability. Right. He's not expressing his own need and he's not has he's not genuinely caring about the other person he's he's giving them things in order to get something back right and that is a fundamental misconception about the nature of how humans work and that leads to all of the pain in his life yeah you know and him hurting a whole bunch of other people too yes you know in the process um but he wants love on his terms (laughs) you know which is something we could talk about because on some level, you have the right to decide what love is to you and sure. what you want and what you need out of life. Absolutely. And that is correct. Yeah. And on another level, love on your terms denies the other person. Yeah. Because you can't have love on your terms and have it there. It is therefore not on their terms. Right. And love is a compromise. Love is a relationship. Well, there's a great song in Eternal Sunshine Spotless by John Bryan, right? Uh, here we go. Here we, and it it talks about it either that or it's the punch drunk love soundtrack. But it talks about you, you know you got to find the one who's messed up in a way that makes sense to you. And it's that's love on your terms is you want to you you find that person that you sync with that chemistry right. and whose flaws you don't have a problem with and their flaws in your flaws they don't have a problem with. And it's not that they don't occasionally have issues with it, but they accept you fully. And that's love on your term. And, and, and the thing is, I think I think Cain is trying to be understanding in this moment, but he fails at it miserably because he doesn't understand what love is. And when he says, the only terms anyone ever knows. Yeah. And he's mistaken in that because he thinks he's being profound. Right. When in fact... It sounds profound. It sounds profound, right? But it's presenta- it pre- presented in a profound way. But in fact, it's quite the opposite. Yeah. I know we brought this up before, yep. um, uh, which is one of both of our favorite songs and favorite lines from our favorite songs, which is Hearts and Bones. Oh, yeah. The Paul why Simon song. Yeah. Why can't you love me for who I am, where I am? <laughs> because that's not the way the world works, baby. Yeah. This is how I love you, baby. That is a much more true statement yeah. of love and love as a negotiation between two people trying to find each other and make it work in some ways and the obstacles to that, as opposed to love on my terms. What's the name of that song? Hearts and Bones. Right. What's that? Does it have that line of train in the distance? That's a different song. That what song is that? Uh, I think it's called Train in the Distance. Yeah, and that's uh, we talked about Train in the Distance first part, and I wonder if that was influenced, if Kane influenced him uh, writing that song. Interesting. That's an interesting idea. Because let's just, call it Paul Simon. Yeah, it's called. <laughs> I, boy, he'd be great to have on the cinephiles. Oh, I if adore, we ever get to that level, I adore Paul Simon. Come on, right. Paul Simon. Um, yeah, come on over. You know you want to do it. Um, and then and then Leland says, and he hits it. He drops it like a bomb. Yeah, I want to go work on the Chicago paper. Something I just found out, which I didn't know, is that Cotton had to leave to go be on Broadway. Oh, and so they shot this whole scene. They shot twenty four hours straight. What? Yeah. Wow. In order to shoot him out so he could leave. Holy crap! And when he stumbles over that line and he says, oh, "I'm drunk." Yeah. That was a mistake. He was just really tired, and they just kept it in. And it's a great, great moment in the scene. Well, you said yourself you were looking for someone to do dramatic criticism. Uh, criticism. I am drunk. <laughs> <laughs> I want to go to Chicago. And this is like, I'm ending the friendship. Yeah. And, and and Kane tries to make a, oh, it's windy there, and you won't be able to get Lobster Newberg. And he's kind of trying to make it friendly and trying to, in, in his own way, he's saying, don't go. Right. That is his best of course. version of saying, don't go. Yeah. And Leland's response is, will Saturday after next be all right? Anytime you say. Thank you. 
That's the end of the friendship. Yeah. That's it. They just broke. He just broke up with him. Yes. It's, I, I think it's the end of the relationship. It's maybe not the end of the friendship just yet, but it's mm. certainly the end of the relationship. Yeah. Well, we're going to go to another level yeah. on this, on this relationship. Exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is a, he says, I'm done with you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I still want to stay employed by you. Yeah. Well, yeah. He's, <laughs> he's still sucking on the teeth of the Kane empire. So he's not really done with him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, Leland is a smart guy yeah. and a wise guy and a curmudgeonly guy, but he's not a particularly strong guy. No. You know? He's pragmatic, though. Yeah. Mm. Um, and now Wells is going to go marry the singer, and it's pretty joyful again in this yeah. moment. Yeah. I don't think we feel good about this marriage, uh, no. but but the music is kind of fun. And his response to the reporters is oh, funny yeah. and playful. And then he says this line, we're going to be a great opera star. Yeah. We're going to be a great opera star. Right. Yeah. I, I hope I'm not so transparent in my messed upness sometimes, you know, but those things are so obvious. Like, wait, yeah. hold on. There's a problem with how you said that. <laughs> the we part. The yeah. we part is a little problematic. Yeah. And of course, we think that she's, she, you know, it's no problem. She's going to open up at the Met. Oh, totally. totally. Yeah. yeah. But no, we're going to have to build a whole uh, a whole opera house for her. Mm -hmm. Which, and by the way, again, back to Marion Davies, uh, that... Once Hearst brought her to Hollywood, and he wanted her to be a movie star, and he put her in these big, serious movies. He built whole big budget movies around her. Yeah. He rebuilt the movie theaters to play the movies that Marion Davies. He had all the Hearst papers, you know, push Marion Davies as the next big star. I mean, this the parallel is very, very clear. But just like Marion Davies, just because you push him doesn't mean the doesn't, public wants him. Yeah. yeah. You can't force those things to happen, even no matter how powerful you are. It happens all the time in Hollywood. And we go to the opera. No, no, no. This was written. This was written by Bernard Herrmann. Wrote this opera, um, and we are in some crazy, crazy chaos of the moments right before the opera happens. There's people in the foreground and the backgrounds. It feels like hundreds of people. Yeah. And it's really probably about 20 people that are literally running back and forth, grabbing other things. And you can see, like, if you look at some of the staging from Voodoo Macbeth, he's doing very much the same yeah. kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then as as the opera starts and we're, and we're uh, looking from the audience into the stage this time, and we go up and up and up, and this goes through three different shots. Yeah. So it's in the real world, then it goes up into a fly, then it, which is the space above the stage, and then it wipes across a beam, and now we're in a model. And we go through the model for a while, and then it wipes again, and now we're with these guys standing way, way up in the rafters, and one of them plugs his nose. Right. Perfect, perfect storytelling. And holds it. And Yeah. 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 This is clearly not a good opera, not a good singer. And then we go to back again to the newspaper offices, yep. and we see Bernstein, who is sort of the captain of the ship at this point, yep. planning out the reviews, and that and and Kane kind of walks in. He's wearing this beautiful fur coat, unbelievable oh, costume. It's a very large fur coat. Yeah. Um, very powerful fur coat. A, yeah, you, killed, you killed a lot of animals. To, <laughs> yeah, a lot of yeah, dead yeah. animals to make that fur coat. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting, when Kane walks in, he, it, it's very clear to me, I don't know how you feel, that he knows that the opera stunk. Yeah. That he knows that she was terrible. Yeah. And that he's watching his staff do what they are supposed to do, which is build it up. And that he's and then he has to kind of put on his his show yeah. before he walks up to them. Right. And we find out that the one review that's missing is the dramatic review, and that's Mr. Leland's, and he's in this other office. Yeah. And we go in, and there is a drunk, unconscious Leland lying on his typewriter, the review still stuck on the roller. Uh, and 
Kane asked Bernstein to close the door and read the review. It's Susan Alexander, a pretty but hopelessly incompetent amateur. And it's interesting watching, again, Everett Sloan's great performance of, I don't want to say these words to Kane, but I've been told to do it and therefore I have to do it. And you could see all of that sort of playing in and and some loyalty to Leland and loyalty to Kane and him, who he is as a person and being like the stand-up guy that he is and he has to read this thing. Um, and then the sentence trails off. And what does Kane do? Go on. Go on. He snatches the paper out and then finishes the review for him. Improv style. Yeah. Like just completely comes up with it on the spot. <laughs> Overacting, it is absolutely impossible to say anything except that in the opinion of this reviewer, it represents a new low. Have you got that, Mr. Bernstein, in the opinion of this reviewer? I didn't see that. And Bernstein's confused by this because he said there's, that's not on... Like, he legitimately asks the question, how can you say it's not on the paper? It right. wasn't... And then uh, Kane says to him, you know... It isn't here, Mr. Bernstein. I'm dictating. Well, Mr. Kane, I... Get me a typewriter. I'm going to finish Mr. Leland's notice. And, and what I love, too, is when he's reading uh, and he's, Leland's he review... And he at it. He's laughing. Yes! He... he he what is still he likes it. What is he doing? When he's laughing? Yeah, yeah. Is he trying I, to be magnanimous? Okay, let's let's we got to back up on this because there's a lot of stuff going on. I okay. think. Okay, because I mean, Leland thing is, is passed out drunk. Yes, so he's not going to see him. The first thing is he liked Jed Leland. Yes, he did. And Jed Leland made him laugh mm-hmm. when they were young. Sure, his sense of humor, his kind of ironic take on the world. Leland is a very smart guy. Yeah, and he liked having that person in his life. And I think when he reads those first few sentences and the balls of it too, mm-hmm. to like to 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 attack the boss's wife. Yeah, he that makes him smile. I think he has a genuine moment of joy right. in seeing this. And then when he decides to finish the review, I think we're right back with what Leland said about giving people things to persuade them to yeah. love you. Yeah. I think that's what he's doing. Yep. I think he thinks he's being magnanimous. Right. And again, we go to like, okay, if you do something magnanimous, but your motivations are maybe not so magnanimous, is it magnanimous? I don't really know. No. Okay. And, he's pl- and he's playing it to Bernstein once again. Oh, yeah. Bernstein is always the audience. Yeah. And then we go uh, off into another room and uh, Charlie is typing and Leland slowly wakes up, sees that the the paper is gone. And he, he kind of smiles. He's like, well, I knew I'd never really get away from that. And then uh, he hears that Charlie, that Mr. Kane is finishing the review. Mm-hmm. From Bernstein. Yeah. And from I, Bernstein lights his cigar. Yeah. And I love Jed Leland's reaction. He goes, Charlie's here? <laughs> and I think, and I don't know what you think. He's like, his first reaction is, my old friend is here. Absolutely. Like, oh, absolutely. Because yeah. that's what happens. That's what happens to men. Men, I don't know, women, I don't, you know, I don't, I'm not a woman. I don't know. It's been my experience. Men will fight, and then a couple of weeks, we'll be fine. We'll get over it. We'll get past it, you know? And Usually. A, a number of women complain to me about this fact that men can do this. That, yeah. Because women, sometimes when they fight, it's like, it lingers for years. Yeah. But when dudes fight, dudes fight, 
get over like a week later they're fine they get together they're cool but you're right it doesn't always happen but certainly i've seen it's been my experience that does happen and it seems in this moment this is him just like oh yeah i haven't seen he's gotten past the anger of the situation he's kind of settled into chicago now and so charlie's and he's the way he says charlie is so affectionate gets up walks over and i think when he comes over to talk to kane he thinks that things are going to be yeah he can there's some possibility of redemption yeah the fact that he's finishing his review yeah. is is positive as well. And and we go into this shot, which is a remarkable shot, Great with shot. Kane in the foreground, yeah. really big, shadowed, finishing the review. Uh, Leland is sort of mid-ground, and then way, way, way in the background <laughs> is the silhouette of Bernstein yeah. in the doorway. And this is a composite shot. There was no way to do this in reality. Mm-hmm. So the, the Kane oh. part of the shot it was shot once, and then the other side with Leland and Bernstein is composited together. Because with that kind of lighting, you couldn't have that deep focus. Right. So again, this is another special effect shot. You know, and these are hard to do. Yeah. And they're done throughout the film. And they are, I never knew that was a composite shot. Seamless. No idea. Yeah. They're perfectly, perfectly seamless. And Leland comes up kind of enthusiastic to talk to his friend Charlie. Yeah. And what does Kane say? Hello, Jedediah. Hello, Charlie. I didn't know we were speaking. Sure, we're speaking, Jedediah. You're fired. Oh, and Leland's face drops, and that's the end of the relationship. Absolutely. Because and then they, and they never spoke again. I imagine. Nope. nope. Uh, but Leland's look uh, is so pained because oh, it's awful. He had thought there was reconciliation possible here, and then in Charlie's magnanimous moment, his hubris once again overrode his uh situation because even bernstein says well he's finishing the review the way you were gonna write the way you're that'll show you that'll show you fucking show you what you know that this man is an egotist and or ego is whatever his ego is incredibly large and he wants he wants some kind of credit for finishing the review the way leland would have written it the thing the inherent thing about this moment steve for me that's very powerful is he knows she sucks And even in this moment, writing the review the way Leland would write it, he's writing it this way because he knows himself. It's the truth. She sucks. That it's the truth. But he will not stop and he will not see it. Well, this is the madness of Cain. And in the second half of the film, we see him do all these things. And I I know, know people that have done this. I've seen people do this over and over again. It's like you're repeating to do the thing that is making you miserable. Yeah. And you have every bit of power to change that situation. Yeah. And yet you continue to do it over and over and over again. And Kane, easily one of the most powerful men in the world, yeah. is continually doing things to make him miserable. Some people are caught in the hamster wheel yeah. of their own shit and because they're too afraid to break out of it because yeah. it causes so much change. And the devil you know... Well, and the thing that, you know, that Leland says is taking the quotes away from quote singer is that the most destructive moment in his life is when it's revealed that he's having an affair because that's when he's mm. about to peak right. is that he's about to be governor. If he becomes governor, we all believe he's going to be president. Right. And the moment, the choice that he makes is to stay with Susan Alexander. If he was staying with someone who isn't everything that he could believe that isn't amazing, yeah. then why would he have made this sacrifice yeah. in order to make it meaningful that he lost everything that he had all of his ambitions she must be a great opera singer yeah or it's all bullshit yeah and so he's even though of course she's not a great opera singer not at all you know if you would just i'm in love with her yeah it would be fine so leland leaves and now we're back to old man jed leland 
you know, he talks about, he goes down to that place, Xanadu, uh, he built his own world, an absolute monarch. You know, there's that sentence, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm. I think there's an, another part of it that we should get from Cain, which is absolute power corrupts your insides. Yeah. It breaks your soul. Mm -hmm. It's not just that you will become a bad person and hurt other people. It's that this is not good for you. Right. You know? Well, that's what absolutely it means yeah. from the inside and outside. Yeah. You're absolutely, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and he still wants him to stop at a cigar store. <laughs> and the nurse line, which is great. Yeah. It's a great cherry on top of that scene. Yeah. You know, when I was a young man, there used to be an impression around that nurses were pretty. Well, it was no truer then than it is today. I'll take your arms. <laughs> all right, all right. You won't forget about those cigars, will you? And uh, have them wrap them up to look like a toothpaste or something, or they'll stop them at the desk. You, you know that young doctor I was telling you about? Well, he's got an idea. He wants to keep me alive. <laughs> And we're going to leave Leland, and now we're going to go back to Susie. We're going to go through the same entrance to the roof. It's not raining anymore. Back down. And now we see a much more up Dorothy Gore, And we see that yeah. so much she's become kind of a a a fun, a tough old broad, is yeah, how I would describe sure. her. But she's also an alcoholic, and this is what happens. Yep. Right? Alcoholics have terrible moments, like when he first visited her. Now she's more lucid in, in a way, and yeah. so she's more amenable to talking, which is what that guy said. I don't know. She... You know, a couple of days ago, she had no right. problem talking about Charlie Kane or about Kane. And now, you know. And, and the first thing she says about Kane was that everything was his idea. Yeah. Except me leaving him. <laughs> Which she takes pride. The way she says it. Oh, yeah. A lot of pride in that. Absolutely. Well, we see why. Because we're going to get, we're now going to build to that moment. We're going to start with training for the opera. Oof. And we should mention, we saw him a little bit before, but uh, Fortunio Bononova. Yeah is the opera uh, instructor. <laughs> he is great. He is funny and intense and exasperated. Could easily be a caricature, Yeah, but it's done so well that it does. It yeah. never slides into that. Yeah, and we start with the scene. He's teaching her, and she is not living up to it, and then he goes, impossible, <laughs> impossible, impossible, impossible. It's not your job to give Mrs. Kane your opinion of her talents. Supposed to train her voice, Signor Matisti. But Miss Nothing Kane. more. Please sit down and continue with the lesson. And his power, his stillness and his power is just very, very pal palpable. And he says, You will continue with the lesson. Yeah. He doesn't ask him. Mm -hmm. He's used to telling people what I don't know how much he's paying this opera instructor. My assumption Probably is a lot. This is the greatest opera instructor in the world. Mm -hmm. That's who he went and found. And he has paid him a ridiculous amount of money. To, to you know, ten times probably what he would normally make, yeah. and that is why this guy is still here. Yeah, and the guy, you know, and there's this thing of like, you know, what will people think of me? And he goes, oh, I'm something of an authority of what people will think. Yeah, yeah, not really actually. <laughs> and the opera trainer backs down. I thought you'd see it my way, but this is his. This becomes Kane's modus operandi now, going into the second half of the film. Bullying to bullying to tower over people yep. into submission. This is he does this here with him. He'll do that with Susan in the tent later, or not in the suit in the tent, but in the hotel room later. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and try to do it at the tent as well. Yeah, um, that one goes a little bit differently. Yes. We go right back to the opera, except now we're from the opposite direction. Now we're from kind of backstage. Chaos is, if anything, more chaotic. Um, and the curtain opens up, and we see this huge, huge opera hall. There's no opera hall. 
<laughs> it's just it's lights. Just lights. It's just lights. She's performing to a wall. Yeah, this is a wall with some lights Phenomenal. on it. Phenomenal. Yeah. And then we cut to, but we have the sense of this big of opera. And all we're doing is cutting to these high angle shots of, you know, close up of Leland, some shots of like three or four people in the frame with uh, Bernstein. Bernstein. We hear the sounds of people. And this opera is not going well. No. And we see Bernstein is falling asleep. <laughs> We see Leland. I love the little tearing he does with the program yeah. as, and how long it's been because, man, he does a beautiful job yeah, tearing up that program. We hear people laughing, you know, as Kane's watching. Oh, and we see uh, our opera singer, uh, Bonanova, freaking out in the little well, the teacher, prompters right? yeah, yeah, yeah. box, which is very funny. Yeah. Um, and the opera ends, and there's some applause, and then Kane claps. Yeah. And I know you and I interpreted this moment differently, which I find sort of fascinating. Which you'll hear on the commentary track. Yeah, but what's, right. but whichever interpretation is is the correct one, the intensity the is intensity. undeniable yep, of what happens when Kane applauds. Yeah. Man, like Orson Welles' power is incredible mm -hmm. in the scene. And now we get to, um, we're back in like probably a hotel room and Susie is surrounded by newspapers. Mm -hmm. Strown out all over the Yeah, place. all these reviews. And she is screaming, I would say harpy-like. Shrilling. Shrilling about friends don't write reviews like that, about Jed Leland's review. They're awful funny, aren't you? Which, by the way, he didn't write that review. <laughs> right. Kate never says, oh, actually, I wrote that no, review. No, of course not. Yeah. And, and then we also find out as she's screaming at them that she's found out that what he did after was send uh, Leland a check for $25,000. Severance, in essence. Yeah. That's an interesting choice. That's the tip. That's the tip. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And as and this again, this is just perfect, perfect movie storytelling. As she's saying this, he gets a letter from Mr. Leland and pours out a bunch of shreds of paper. And mm -hmm. every single person watching this movie knows that's the check for $25,000, yep. which my guess is Leland could have really used. Probably. Yeah. I Once don't again, think he doesn't have a lot of money. Leland, all, Leland is the one who becomes the principled person yeah. in this movie, which is ironic considering the way he started. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then he and what else does he pull out of that envelope? The Declaration of Principles. Declaration of Principles. Yeah. Which he said was going to come in handy yeah. one day. Which he and and she asks what it is, and he says an antique. Mm -hmm. And then the way he and she goes, "I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to be. Uh, I'm not going to go out there again." And his intensity as he tears up that declaration, um, oh, man. and then pulls the pipe out and yells at her. My reasons satisfy me, Susan. You seem unable to understand them. I will not tell them to you again. You will continue with your singing. Yeah, and she, she says, she refuses singing. He says, you will continue with your singing. I don't propose to have myself made ridiculous. Mm. This is what's making him look ridiculous. Mm -hmm. Pushing this woman over and over again. She doesn't want to do it. Nobody, again, it's like the scene where, where Gettys and Emily and Susan are all saying, don't do it. Yeah. And he is forcing this thing to go this other way. And now he is forcing this woman who doesn't want to do this thing, this whole newspaper empire, all these opera places, he's forcing this thing to happen so that he won't be made to look ridiculous. Right. And it's making him look ridiculous. Yes, because she, he, once again, we talked about people are commodities. They're not real. To him, she's the battlefield for his anger yeah. at the world yep. and his anger at the establishment, his anger at everything. Because, you know, and we'll find out later when he, say, when he really betrays that later on. So. Yeah. 
And he has this line, again, these lines are so oh, yeah. fascinating. My reasons satisfy me, Susan. That's the yell. You seem unable to understand them. Yeah, you, you're the problem. My Not me, you're the problem. My reasons satisfy me. Right. See, he doesn't say, I, there's no sense that I have to satisfy you with my reasons. It's, I have looked at my reasons for doing this, yes. and I am satisfied with them, and <laughs> I, therefore you must understand them. Right. And how many people listening have been in a relationship, or an abusive relationship, where the person refuses to see their fault or their flaw yeah. in the re- and makes it your fault, your yeah. problem, that you're the one that's not understanding them when it's very obvious that they have no concept of how to understand themselves and what they're doing. Crawling out of the well of our own perspective is not an easy thing sometimes. Crawling is correct. Yeah. But, but it is necessary. Yeah, sure. You know, like it is necessary to try to get your head out every once in a while mm-hmm. and take a look around mm-hmm. and see how... So the way someone else is seeing a situation. Absolutely. Even if, and this is the thing, I'm sure you've had this. If I, I know you and I have had this in our own relationship yeah. of like, of you'll say a thing and I'll say a thing. And then I'll suddenly go, oh, wait, that's how you saw that. Right. And even if I didn't agree, it's your way of seeing it is valid. Right. And it's, and, and like seeing that, being able to put your brain in someone else's head mm-hmm. and see the world from their perspective. It's like, uh, and what you discover is like, oh, we're all walking around in different worlds. Yeah. You know, uh, and making then, different assumptions and making different yep. uh, judgments that color everything we do after that yeah. in relation to the person we're having that situation with. And none of these, including our own, yeah. is the truth. No, it's very true. It is just that is how you saw that. Right. You know, and Cain cannot crawl out of his no. own perspective. It's too late. Yeah. He doesn't have the tools. You would have to have started years ago for him to have the tools at this age of this scene for him to be able to crawl out of his own perspective. And I think... He has the chance at the end, but there is, but in this moment, he is nowhere near that. Well, and and wealth and privilege are the enemy of this. Sure. Because all of the power that you get from this, why would you have to? It papers over everything else. Because everyone is around to kiss your ass and to do what you say. And so, of course, what you say is right. You know, when you get the shit kicked out of you more often, then you kind of go like, oh, actually, I'm not that important. And other people have different perspectives (laughs) and I kind of have to reckon with the world a little bit. I need to listen to them a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know. He's going to need a lot more lessons. Uh, and yep. He's going to get a lot more lessons. Exactly. John, I can't tell you how excited I am about the Cinephile's new sponsor, an absolutely incredible game, Marvel Strike Force. Now, anyone who's listened to the show knows that I've been reading comic books since I was five years old. And this is like a comic book fan's dream come true. You could create a mobile squad and play as your favorite Marvel characters. I mean, everyone is there. The Punisher, Vision, Black Panther, Cap or even my favorite Marvel character of all time, Daredevil. Your goal is to power up those characters, unlock gear, and use them to compete in player versus player mode, alliance mode, and real-time arena. Yes, Stephen, as we speak, they are enjoying their six-year anniversary. Six years, wow. And you know what that means? Free stuff just for signing up via their unique link in the description. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses. If you complete each event, you can receive special rewards, and skins. Completing every single mission throughout the entire anniversary will result in an even more special reward. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out, y'all. Check out that unique promo code, and for every new user, please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. Once again, Thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force. We're very, very excited to have you sponsoring this episode. 
Um, <laughs> and then we go into, and she's he stands over her. Yes. And the sh- I mean, we don't have to, you know, explain the metaphor of that shadow crossing over her face and her crumbling underneath it. Mm-hmm. It is scary. Do you think he's? Do you think he has ever hit her before we get to that scene in the tent? No, I don't think so either. I don't think so because he still sees her as this kind of like insecure thing that he needs to take care of and he needs to guide, right? And almost like a child. Well, he and, sees her almost like a child. And when he does finally hit her, which we're going to get to soon, yeah, I think that's one of his weakest moments. You know, that's that's sure. that's him losing it, right? Like, but, uh, but it's because she's becoming an adult. Yeah, exactly. Right, pushing back. Yeah. Um. So, uh, and now we go into this montage of the opera continuing, yes. and it, it's just painful. It's very painful. It's so, so painful. No one is happy doing it. Yeah. And the montage ends as the music fades out with this shot of medicine in the foreground, yeah. the silhouette of Marion, of silhouette of uh, Susan in the mm-hmm. bed, and the door getting knocked open, and Kane rushing in with a maid or someone. Yeah. Um, and finding her. And again, the storytelling is perfect. We understand that she has tried to take her own life. Mm-hmm. And again, this is a composite shot. Right. With the with the medicine, because you can't do have all this in focus. So they thought the medicine first, and then they shot the stuff with Kane second. Jesus. What's um, great too is this mirrors the light scene at the beginning of the movie. The light, the flash going. Right. I hadn't thought about that. Is almost like an, is mm. a, again, an almost death of Susan yeah. because she tries to commit suicide. We call the doctor. The doctor comes in mm-hmm. and even now, Kane has to spin it. Yep, of course. How could she make such a foolish mistake? Yeah. I have now framed how you're going to tell this story. Mm-hmm. And the doctor knows it's a lie, and we all know it's a lie. Right. And he goes, yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. You know? Mm-hmm. I like, too, by the way, the doctor kind of says something to the other the person. The nurse, yeah. Which I think is sort of, let's protect this situation. I yeah, think yeah, he's yeah. saying something mm-hmm. to to not let her commit suicide yep. again. Um. And Kane sits by her side in the dark. I think for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. I think it might be a couple of days. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think he's doing some sort of internal penance on some level. Okay. I don't think he gets there. Right. But he gets somewhere. He 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 does decide to change at least to some degree. Well, he and not initially because he says you got to fight him and blah blah blah. Well, he says that, he says that's what that's why I think you got to fight. Right. Right, yeah. and that's when. Well, he says that's when you got right. He says I, that's his interpretation of the world. Yeah. That's when you got to fight him, and you go blah, blah blah. But Susan can't do it anymore. Yeah, you know. And I love the look of those, like scared animal, yeah. sweaty, like just heartbreaking desperate. look. Desperate, yeah. Yeah. yes, Steve, desperate uh, look on her face to just be heard by him one time. Yeah, and finally he does hear her. He and does. Says, All right, we won't do it anymore. But I think I don't know if he's doing internal penance when he's sitting there, Steve. I think he's brooding yes. and already thinking of how he's going to uh uh work this situation out to get her back on that stage. I think he's thinking of all the possible reasons she can give and what his responses are going to be. And he's just analyzing the situation while he's sitting there the whole time. And he's just driven by that because we see that kind of mirrored when he's in the, uh, watching her in the opera, he's mentally having these other thoughts in his head before he realizes he hasn't been clapping when the opera ends and then starts a new wave of clapping. And so, uh, to me, this is, this is a different man now. He's older. Because when we're older, we become introspective, whether we like it or not. We become introspective as we get older because things aren't as quickly as they... Things I don't know that everything. everyone does. Really? I think some people do. Okay. 
Yeah. I feel like you, whether people want to admit it or not, they do. Because you're forced to understand I, the breakdown of your body. I have known some older people who were not remotely introspective. <laughs> okay, that's fair. Yeah. Um, there are people who just aren't introspective. Okay. And I was introspective when I was 10. So Yeah. Um, but, you, but you don't think people see the destruction of their body and the and you don't think, oh, shit, my God, it's happening. Old age is happening. You don't think that, that they do that? Oh, I think... Pe- I, 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 look, I can't, I can't make judgments about. Yes, okay. I think people, but I think people are different. I'll just put, well, I think say there's different that. levels of introspection. Yeah. That's yeah. for sure. But I think for him, he is. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, yeah. So um, the scene. well, well, and I think he has been confronted. Her attempted at suicide mm. is essentially saying to him, "You're a horrible person." Yeah, and just like he's confronted with his uh, hypocrisy at the election by Leland. And now this is another thing confronting him with who he is. And now he's trying to reconstruct. So I don't know that he's ever thinking I'm going to put her on the stage again, but I do think that he is trying to construct a reality in which she will love him again. Yeah. You know, and, and, and this line of, you know, to go on stage and know the audience doesn't want you. And then he says, that's when you've got to fight them. That's what I'm saying. That is a, cause that is bad advice. You can't fight someone into wanting you, you know? I don't know if I agree, but okay. Yeah? Yeah. I mean, that th- th- you can't combat someone and force them to like you. You can make changes so that they do like you. Sure. That's what I mean. That's not fighting them. Okay. You know what I mean? Like, right. yeah, I mean, I mean, th- I mean, again, like there's... His... No, it's interesting, yeah. Yeah, I don't know how you... I mean, like, you know, it's funny. I thought a lot about... When I was... Uh, I won't be, hopefully, a long digression, but when I was... I had a really close group of friends when I was a little kid. Yeah. And around nine years old, for whatever reason, they kind of stopped being my friends. Okay. You know, and I became a really lonely kid, mm-hmm. you know? And and part of it, I think they kind of became cool in a way that I wasn't capable of at mm-hmm. that time. And I, I really struggled with interpersonal relationships and figuring out how to be social, you know, yeah. as an introvert. And... um that one that experience of really wanting these people to be my friends and them not wanting to i really learned at 9 10 11 12 like oh you can't force someone to like you right you know yeah. that you there there's just it's not possible no matter how you can't they they have to come to you you yeah. can't make them yeah. you know and that took so so for me going like well that's when you have to fight them mm-hmm. like that to me like no that's exactly what you can't do mm, that's fair but Maybe I'm wrong, you know? No, no. I mean, in my mind, I look at it like professional wrestling. If you look at The Rock, when The Rock first got promoted, he was promoted as a third-generation superstar, Rocky right. Maivia, and people hated him. Mm. Not in a good way, not in the heel, because he, right. he was a good guy. Right. And then he went into like a bit of a depression about it, didn't figure out, mm. and Vince said, no, no, no we're going to make this work. You know? Right. Vince, very much like Kane, is very much like Kane, Vince McMahon. Sure. And so they readjusted his personality and made him play into the booze, made him a heel, and that put him over. Right. So they twisted it a little bit. So he fought them in that way uh, by making the adjustments to be in a way like, fuck you to the audience. I'm going to come back as a heel. Make fun of you. Turn it around on you. You were making fun of me. Now right. I'm going to make fun of you in all my promos and all my kind of things. But that's a different thing. Because what think, he did than, was yeah. he changed. Yeah, he changed. He right. said, I have to change. Right, right. That's not what Kane's saying. Right, right. That's Kane. Kane is saying you have to change. Yeah, right. Exactly. I will beat you up the until audience. you like me. Yeah, exactly. You know. Yeah. Um. Uh. But he says she doesn't have to fight anymore. Right. And she's really grateful. And we go off to Xanadu. <laughs> um. 
So one of the I wanted to talk a little bit about San Simeon because one oh, of the yeah. things about San Simeon because that is the Xanadu yeah. is this is this place that uh, William Randolph Hearst built for years with his architect Julia Morgan and the way they present it when you go there if you watch as a big IMAX film and stuff yeah. is that Hearst is this great genius building this thing and watching well, it's his it, castle why wouldn't they yeah. um, and watching it, it's like no he's a spoiled asshole mm-hmm. with no taste like the thing about San Simeon is he literally did have a wall from this church and the roof of this uh, castle Mm -hmm. and these statues from this area. And he just would show up with new stuff and they'd be in the middle of building something. He'd go, oh, we'll tear that down and put this wall in the middle of it. And then he would do it again. And so they were constantly building and rebuilding. And there are things where it's like the floor is from the 12th century in Italy and the ceiling is from the 15th century in France. Yeah. Nothing matches. It's all a hodgepodge. Gaudy. It's gaudy. It's tasteless. It's it's not like this. He takes like a statue and puts a lamp through its butt. And I mean, it's just all just tacky. And I mean, the place is amazing in some ways and it's beautiful landscape overlooking the Pacific Ocean. And it's very gorgeous. And some of the exteriors and the pools are really beautiful. But it's also like gross yeah you know and a complete you know i i was so angry by the time i got out of san simeon with just this spoiled rotten person who is just thinks he's the you know god's gift and is forcing all these people to work year after year after year continually rebuilding this mountain for his own pleasure yeah yeah and made that that sort of wealth and uh you know, sense of entitlement just makes me mad. Yeah. And, and what's funny is Kane has much better taste than <laughs> Hearst. This, I mean, this great room is fairly crazy where she's doing her puzzle and it's actually a pretty simple set. Yeah. It, 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 it's just, this is the sound stage, and we have a mostly in shadow. So we don't see what most of it is. Yeah. And we have this ginormous fireplace and we have her doing her puzzles. Yeah. Which by the way, Marion Davies also loved. puzzles. Yes. Yeah. Um, and by the way, in this scene, she's pre- Susan uh, uh, Dorothy Commodore is pregnant. Oh wow! And so that's why she's kind of has the table in front of her, and she has sort of the flowing dress to cover up the pregnancy. Okay, yeah, uh, which I didn't know. And uh, she wants to go up to New York because mm-hmm. she's lonely down here. Uh, he is. I don't think Kane goes back to New York very much at this point. No, no. He has too he, many bad memories. Yeah, and he's hiding. I think on some level. Uh, and we go through a montage now of puzzles. These are cool looking puzzles. Mm-hmm. Very thick pieces. Yeah. And uh, Kane comes back in, comes down the stage. And now his his old acting is just... Incredible. Incredible. Yeah. He put on a back brace to make oh. him move more stiffly. He and he has a broken ankle too. And that's kind of helping him move very stiffly. But mm-hmm. his voice, his body language, all of this. Um, the exhaustion. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. Um, the windows in this background uh, are another matte painting. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is mostly just a big empty set. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and it feels like we're in some castle. It really does. Um, and he says, let's have a picnic. Invite everyone over. And she's like, why would anyone want to go on a picnic where you drag them out to the middle of nowhere and make them sleep in tents when they have nice rooms and baths? Yeah. <laughs> Makeup, you mean? Yeah. Yeah. And and he just ignores it and says, "Thought we might have a picnic tomorrow, Susan." He uh, he's the dad. Yeah, he is such a dad in this whole situation. He turns her into a. He tries to turn her into a child and keep her a child. Yeah, 
Right. Well, and he's also controlling all these other guests mm-hmm. who are hangers on. And this yeah. is exactly what Hearst did yeah. when people came up to San Simeon. In his parties, there was Charlie Chaplin and Douglas Fairbanks, yeah. and Mary Pickford, and all of the famous people of the time. And he would say, we're going on a picnic. Yeah. Now we're doing this. Now they would have like little costume shows and he would send the costumes that everyone was going to wear <laughs> to their rooms. And that's what they had to wear and what time they had to be there. And he didn't like booze or alcohol. And so, but Marion Davies was a serious drinker. And so she would have, she and people would basically have secret drinking and they would pass things around, but not let Hearst know. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it sounds like parties at Hearst Castle were really cool and just really, really controlling. Mm-hmm. And uh, we, so, but Kane takes us off on a picnic. It's a weird picnic. It is a weird picnic. We go drive out in a car. It's a caravan. Yeah. Yeah. And Susan is saying, you never give me anything I really care about. Mm-hmm. Man. She's gotten pretty spoiled over the years. Yeah, but this is also the progression of her defiance. The puzzles, her snapping back at Hearst about, or not Hearst, I'm sorry, at Kane about, you know, making people come right. to these things. And then her sitting in the car with him. It's very depressing. It's all depressing. Yeah. And it is her just like slowly figuring out her voice in this relationship. And you see the progression. Yeah. And her saying that to him, she would never said that to him ten oh, years ago. Not. Yeah. Um, but it's also interesting. And this like, has been they, a long time. They've been together a while now because the progression in age from where he is when he marries her, this vibrant, still kind of somewhat vibrant, even though he's in his fifties, to what he looks like now, seventy in yeah. this in this thing. So they've been a while. Well, and this you never give me anything I really care about. Mm. That's kind of a fascinating line to me because the accumulation of stuff, right? It gives you a little buzz of, you know, of dopamine and sure. pleasure. But it isn't doesn't make you lastingly happy, and I think she's kind of discovering that's taken a long time to go like, oh, you give me things. Yeah, he's probably given her diamonds and Rolls Royces and all sorts of stuff. Right. But it doesn't. It it's not stuff that she cares about. And we're going to come up to the next sort of transition. Right. Uh, so we at, we go to the picnic. We have this animation, which we talked mm-hmm. about in the commentary track. Uh, which uh, Roger Ebert thinks it comes from a Kong movie. Yeah, too. yeah, a, oh. yeah. So I'm not because it looks like ter- pterodactyls. It really does. And we go into what's the this tent. song? There's it. It can't be love. It can't be love. It can't be love. But there is no true love. And then we hear this scream. Yep. What is the scream? I don't know, man. Someone being raped? What is it? Well, it sounds there's like laughing and screaming. Yes. And I don't know. There's weird stuff going on. But that song, It Can't Be Love, is really important because she says that. You never give me anything to really care about. She's talking about love. Well, and then never give her love. Yeah. Well, and then we're in the tent. We're still talking about gifts. Yeah. And she says, the gifts are just money. They don't mean anything. Yes. You never really give me anything that belongs to you that you care about. You never give me anything you care about. Right. First, she said, you never give me anything. I care about. Mm-hmm. Now she says you never give me anything you care about. You just tried to buy me into giving you something. Which is what Leland said. Yeah. yeah. Well, and this idea of like, what is love? Because mm-hmm. I give you this thing, right. but if it doesn't come from me, you know, I, I it's funny. I, I'm thinking about like, I thought about like, what's a really good gift? Right. And giving someone something, like when I was a kid, the very first gift I gave my dad was a Batman World's Finest comic book. Oh. And of course, why did I give that to him? Because I wanted it. Right. <laughs> you know? So that's the worst kind of gift. Yes. You know? And then when you get a little better, you start to understand what the other person really wants. And because a great gift is when you understand who they are. Yes. Like I give, I know you, and therefore I can give you something. Not only is it something you want, but I'm showing my love for you that I understand who you are. Yeah. But that is not the ultimate gift. 
The ultimate gift is when you can give something that represents who they are and shows your knowledge of them, but also is special that it came from you, Mm -hmm. that it also has something about you and your relationship and who they really are and your understanding of each other. And that gift brings all of those things. Yeah. And that's, and you need, you cannot give that kind of gift without love. Right. You know, and love in all of those things that it means. And Cain is not capable of that. Gift giving is really a really thing. In relationships, is a real thing, man. It's, it's yeah. really important. And uh, hard. Yeah, and hard. You know, yeah. I had a, I had a, someone I was dating last year who brought me a gift and from New York, and it was a shot glass that said, I love NY. And I'm like, really? <laughs> you could have picked this up here at the farmer's market. Yeah. And then some comic book that was half drawn that was like two, and it wasn't like, it wasn't, I don't know. It just wasn't. And you can tell those are the things you can tell the gifts you get from the people, yeah. like what they actually legitimately feel or care about you. And those are signs. Those are signs. Yeah. If you're constantly getting gift cards, get the fuck out of that relationship. Yeah. 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 It's tough. It's yeah. this tough stuff. You gotta listen. Um, yeah. And of course, her saying that to Kane, that pisses him off. Yes. She, he is definitely really, because really she's bothered right. by him. And he stands up. He just tried to buy me into getting you something. Susan. She finally found the weakness. Mm-hmm. She finally found how to hurt him. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's another thing, too, is that people who love each other know how to hurt each other. Yeah, of course they do. You don't love me. You want me to love you. Sure. I'm Charles Foster Kane. Whatever you want, just name it and it's yours. But you gotta love me. And he slaps her. Because it's true. Yeah. Because Just like Leland nailed him when he said yep. that to him uh, in the in the uh, campaign election office, which is the, was the Inquirer, uh, She's saying the same thing, right? And she's exposing him. And again, this is another woman in his life who is rejecting his yeah. love or his yeah. attempts to show love. Well, I, and I and I go back too to that little kid who his mom sent him yeah, away. That's what I'm saying. And I think he put up armor around himself. Yes, that is basically I'm never going to let anybody in. Mm-hmm. And because, and, and the people that get in, people like Leland or Gettys or Susan in this moment, that's when that emotion comes out. Mm-hmm. And of course, the reality is you needed people to come in. Right. That's what you actually, this is what you need. Yeah. But this is what he can't handle. Right. And he slaps her. And it's her reaction to the slap. And she says, Don't tell me you're sorry. I'm not sorry. I think there's something triumphant about her getting slapped. Like, I think she's like, I got somewhere. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, of course, we're not advocating hitting women, of course, or hitting anybody you care about, like, that way. But in that the moment... The cinephiles is anti-hitting women. <laughs> yes, absolutely. say that right here. 1,000%. But I think in that moment, he, she got her victory I against agree. him and finally uh, achieved uh, equal status, equal balance in the relationship. Yeah. Because she saw through all the things that he tried to do to win her over and exposed him as just a guy. He gives these things because they mean nothing to him. Right. It takes no effort. Yep. What she's saying is love is giving things that take that you listen to the person or you, you have some kind of uniqueness to the gift that appeals to that person because you've been listening to them. You understand what they enjoy, what they like. And she's saying to him, like, you can't do that. And she's saying, you're giving these gifts because you're buying people's right. love because you don't think you can earn it or yeah. deserve it. And that's huge. Yeah. Well, it comes from the heart, not the wallet. Exactly. You know? Mm-hmm. And we go back to Xanadu. Uh, the butler tells Cain uh, that she's packing. Yeah. He goes to her. He tries. He does. He tries. He's almost there. Please don't go. 
Please, Susan. From now on, everything will be exactly the way you want it to be. Not the way I think you want it, but... your way. She gives in just a little yeah. bit right at the end of the conversation, and then he says the fateful line. You mustn't go. You can't do this to me. Which he says almost as a throwaway. Which, let me tell you people, ladies and gentlemen, when you have discussions in your relationships, don't ever throw away a line. <laughs> ever. Because that line could be the destruction of your relationship and or, your, or that, that uh, argument or discussion. Because the throwaway line can sometimes betray other intentions who, who you really are who you really are because the thing is he can't hide who he really is yes because he's put on he's figured out oh god because so great is, you know we're a lot of great times tragedy. in life we're putting on a show you know and we're presenting mm-hmm. a certain version of who we want people to think that we are welcome to social media yeah. yeah and 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 right now he is saying he has figured out what he needs to be to keep her yeah and that is we're going to do things your way not what i think is your way but your way. And he really sells it, and he says it very sincerely, Mm -hmm. and then he says, please, you can't do this to me. I see. It's you that this is being done to. It's not me at all. Not what it means to me. I can't do this to you. Oh, yes, I can. That's the the comeback is so great, yeah. yeah. And you see her strength. I mean, like you, you she yeah. grows. Dorothy Comingore's performance and her ability to go from this girl that we met who had a toothache, very sweet, through this shrill, angry, tortured person in the opera singing, to this lonely, deeply lonely person mm-hmm. who's doing puzzles, to someone who's figured out the enigma of the film yeah. and can stand up to him. Who says, "I can't do this to you." Oh, yes, I can. Yeah. And she walks out the door. Mm-hmm. And leaves her suitcases. Yeah. Well, there's people for that. Yes. I love that she leaves her yeah. suitcases that way. Yeah. And, and and as she walks past all these, through all these doorways, by the way, another optical, she's walking in a black, empty room. <laughs> yeah, of course. Those doorways are just added yeah. later. Question for you, Steve. Yes. Do you believe he is sincere in that moment? Is it, and is it fleeting sincerity? I think because just because he said don't do this in front of the people like she could have understood that she could have said I get it you don't want to be very you're right these are people you could be embarrassed I know that's a very sensitive thing for you to be embarrassed in front of these people and I I, I hear you which is something we didn't bring up that's really important right that he's really embarrassed about the way that she's leaving and that everybody's going to know everybody's going to know right and so she could have understood it that throwaway line but she didn't because it betrayed the fact in her mind it betrayed the fact that he still, even in this moment, when he's somewhat trying to be genuine, he's still only worried about himself and not her. So you ask if I think that he's yes. sincere. Yes. The, the first thing I say is, I would say is that I think people often are not very clear with themselves about whether or not they're being sincere. Very true. Like I have, and I see this with my students, I see this with my son, where it's sort of, they are, they think, they are try- saying what they think I want to hear. Right. You know? And so- they think they're being sincere, but what they're actually doing is trying to solve the problem by giving me what they think I want. Yes. Um, so, and I think, I think he is sincere in the sense that he he does he is genuinely going believes that he is going to try to do things differently with her. Mm-hmm. Whether or not that is because he actually cares about her yeah. in the way that he wants to present, I don't think he is capable of. Right. But I think he is 
his intention is to change. Yeah. The other thing is, if he didn't say that last line, if she did say, would he actually change? No, probably not. Mm -hmm. He would try to change, but it wouldn't be, he is who he is. I think this pattern will repeat itself. It's probably a pattern that's repeated over and over again in this relationship. Yeah. Yeah. But I think, but he is also genuinely vulnerable in this moment without question. Which is why he reacts the way he reacts. Which we're going to see in a moment. But right now we go back to Susan. It's suddenly morning. Yeah. Uh, we also find out she lost all her money, which she seems to have a sense of humor about. He tells her he's going to Xanadu, and she says, you got to talk to Raymond, the butler, mm-hmm. um, because he knows where all the bodies are buried. Yeah. And there's this wonderful moment where the reporter says, you know, all the same, I feel kind of sorry for Mr. Kane. Don't you think I do? Because she loves him. Yeah. On some level, she still loves him. Well, of course. And because she, she got to see behind the curtain yeah. of, and saw how he operated as a person and she saw the tragedy that is him. Yeah. Which is what he says to Thatcher. I could have been a really great man. And she, he could have been a really great man. Uh-huh. Uh, and we leave the way we came in. Which is separates him from Hearst. I think this is where, I think this is the difference between Hearst and Kane in this movie. Kane is actually loved by these people, which is why he's able to hurt them the way he does. Mary Davies really loved Hearst. Yeah. But a lot of people didn't. I mean, I, I don't know what, well, and also the thing is, I don't know what it means to be a great man. I mean, Hearst is a famous person whose name is all over the place that sure. changed the world in a lot of ways. Yeah. Was he a great man? He might not have been a good man. I don't know. I don't know if he's thought of fondly, to be honest with you. But, but well, was Hitler a great man? I don't want to get into that discussion. Yeah. All right. Let's move on. <laughs> Let's go to Xanadu and talk to Raymond. Yeah. So one thing I found out, this actor is Paul Stewart. Wells' direction to Raymond was to play Raymond like he'd been stealing from Kane for years. So, that totally Isn't reads. That a perfect direction? Yes, absolutely. He has been playing this guy and running this system, and he's kind of a scumbag. Yeah. He's a little bit lovable in a certain kind of way. Yeah. Um, and he's just like got all the answers. I know how to handle him. <laughs> it's funny. It's a funny performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that I know... I heard him say Rosebud. Yeah. And there is a cut, which we talked about what a hard cut is, like going to News on the March. Yeah. This is the hardest one of the film, into the screech of the cockatoo. <laughs> and it's interesting, too. You can see right through that cockatoo's eyes, because, of course, this is a composite shot, and it's not mm-hmm. done. But this is the only one that isn't done perfectly. Right. Because you can see that flaw by looking through the cockatoo's eyes, and yet it's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, it's a great, great shot. And we come right back into the moment just where we left with Mrs. Kane leaving. Mm -hmm. And we have Wells in the door, and now he's going to destroy that room. Yeah. Multiple cameras on him. It's all one take. Mm -hmm. He severely cut his hand during the shot, which he kind of hides. You can kind of see him holding his hand back. Uh, The performance is amazing. Incredible. Yeah. The physicality of it all. Yeah. How he's able to go through that whole room. You still sense that he has power, a physical power as as a tall giant of a man. But he's still very awkward. Awkward, yeah. Like everything's very stiff from his shoulders, you know. And well, and it's like this weird. Ver- it's it's the emotion is exploding out of him, mm-hmm. and yet it's also held down mm-hmm. in some way because of his stiffness. Right. Like it's so. It's not wild. It's really strange. Yeah. What he's doing. It's clumsy. And it's clumsy but and it's off determined. balance. Yeah. But and this is what marks a great actor, Steve. Even in the destruction of the room. The destruction of the room is like a monologue. He is mm. building the monologue yeah. all the way until he reaches right. the snow globe. And right. everything builds in ferocity up until he gets to the snow globe. Yeah. So that when there's the stop, 
it's a very powerful and noticeable yep. stop. Yep. Yeah. And he gets a snow globe. Yeah. And he looks at it and he says, Rose, Rosebud. Yeah. And then we know, and then we find out that everyone is watching him. Yeah. And here's a guy who his whole life has been what people will think of me. Yeah. They'll think what I tell them to think. Right. Well, now they've all seen him at his lowest point in his life. Mm -hmm. They're all staring at him. Mm -hmm. And the vulnerability on his face He's and crying. the pain and the and the self-control yeah. also as he slowly walks out room past what are just a whole bunch of different sets from RKO that they pulled out of storage <laughs> for all those doors that none of them match at all, that they just have know, kind of stacked don't. next to each other. And he walks past all that and into the infinite mirror shot. Yeah, It's a, an amazing moment in the film. And I say this in the commentary, but the infinite mirror shot to me is is just the movie itself. It's yeah. everyone's reflection of Kane, of this man. Yeah, and and we come and now we come back to Raymond, who talks about yeah, and I heard it when he died, which somebody had to because there was no one in the room, right? So so you know, I guess Raymond heard it because otherwise we have no movie. Well, the nurse might have heard it. She Maybe. comes in to put yeah. his hands up, uh, and I love the you're a sentimental guy, aren't you? And he's mm -hmm. like. Yes and no. <laughs> Which was a sarcastic comment yeah. by Alan, yeah. And so do we? does that teach us what Rosebud is? No, it doesn't. It's no. the closest we've gotten. Mm -hmm. And now we go back to the Great Hall where all, basically every single prop used in this movie and every single prop in RKO storage <laughs> has been brought over and stacked up. It's incredible. And we see uh statues and the bed and newspapers mm -hmm. and the cup and this is all inside a big soundstage and it really if you look like way up on the side there's some little guys they're just on the wall of the soundstage yeah you know uh and we go through a bunch of the stuff all the jigsaw puzzles we see a stove from the estate of mary kane valued two dollars and now we start asking this question about charles foster kane what does all this mean yeah maybe it adds up to kane maybe it adds up to rosebud and we have our reporters back that we had from the beginning of the movie, including um, Alan Ladd yeah. and Joseph Cotton slides yeah. in there. Yep. Um, I notice uh, you have to look hard to notice him, but he's there. And they ask uh, William Allen, what did you find? And he says, just a lot of pieces in a jigsaw puzzle. Mm -hmm. There are moments in writing where you didn't know that something else that you would come up with would apply and suddenly it appears. And I think this is one of those moments. Okay. I don't think they were thinking of, they use the puzzles, I think, because Marion Davies liked yeah, puzzles. Yeah, right. And then this all of a sudden, like, oh, that's a metaphor for Kane. Mm -hmm. sure. Suddenly it appears and you go, oh, you, there's just moments where writing becomes magical. Yeah. That something appears that you didn't think of that's mm -hmm. just there for you. Well, the whole film is the missing piece of the puzzle. What does Rosebud yeah. mean to finish yeah. the picture? Yeah. Yeah. But, well, and we think it's the missing piece of the puzzle, but really the reporter says it wouldn't have explained anything. Well, that's his opinion. Yeah. Well, he says he was a man who got everything he wanted and then lost it. I actually disagree with that first part of that sentence. He never got everything he wanted. No. He, he got everything that he tried to get, mm -hmm. but none of it is what he wanted. Anyway, it wouldn't have explained anything. I don't think any word can explain a man's life. And we talked about this before, that mm -hmm. this very much relates to the end of Touch of Evil. Yeah. You know, he was a man. What does it matter what you say about people? Mm -hmm. I think that's a very key thing in Orson Welles's philosophy. Sure. Um, but I don't agree. You don't agree? Not with uh, the reporter, no. Yeah. Because the reporter misses the whole story. Right. That's the, that's the thing mm. about Citizen Kane, is this reporter misses the entire story, which is there for us to see. Right. The the His mom sending him away. Right. If this reporter was even remotely psychologically capable of understanding this thing about a man and breaking down a man, he could have seen that this was this was he could have connected all the dots throughout the whole through all these recollections about 
Kane, but he doesn't. And I think that's why that con- that thing, oh, you can't sum up a man by a word. I think it's a cop-out by him because he couldn't figure it out. And I that's that's my opinion. Well, And that's my perspective. I may be completely wrong, but that's what I believe. Well, first of all, with Citizen Kane, I don't think any perspectives are wrong. That's fair. That's you know what fair. I mean? Like, this is just how you feel. Yeah. Um, the other thing to always remember about the reporter is he didn't see all that stuff that we saw. Is that everything? Yeah, he, he did. No, he didn't. Because there's all reflections. There's all, all everything we saw no, is he a story didn't see told it. by the people. See, we he's sitting in a room listening to Mr. Bernstein. Yes. He didn't see Kane go into to the offices. He didn't see Mrs. Kane. That happened 80 years ago. Right. But he, he sees what they see and their perspective, what he was doing. Right. But we but we, because we actually went into these flashbacks, right. are, are having a different experience than the experience the reporter's having. That's all I'm saying. Okay. He's listening to people tell stories. I can tell you a story, you'll know, and I'll go, and then Michael said this, and then Michael felt like this, and then Michael did. Right. That that still gives you a general of idea of and that's course. what i think i think he didn't catch the story yeah. and but i get your point absolutely yeah. a more visceral five senses reaction to something is different than hearing a story told but still i think the story was there yeah because this reporter's job is to interview people sure. and get the story absolutely yeah. absolutely but it is very hard to sum up a person's life sure it's a tough it, he's been he's been handed a difficult job mm-hmm. and he gets he just feels like these are all pieces in a jigsaw puzzle right. and they walk out and we have this huge, huge shot of the great expanse of all of these materials. Yeah. And the camera dollies across on like a, through the air and moves in and in and in. And there we see for the first time since almost the beginning of the film, mm-hmm. the sled. Next to the sled is a picture of Kane and his mother. Right. They grab the sled. They carry it to the fire. And at this, even at this moment, I remember seeing it the first time. I did not know the sled was Rosebud. Right. Neither did I. Because you just go, oh, that's the... I mean, I kind of went, oh, yeah, that's the, that's the sled. Oh, right. oh, that's interesting. Goes into the fire, and then you see it. And uh, again, this is an optical, because they couldn't get the camera that close to the fire, so they zoomed in optically, and that second zoom in... And they had to burn a lot of sleds, by the way, before huh, they got this just sure. right. It's not easy to do. No. Um, and finally, you see those words, Rosebud, mm-hmm. on the sled. And the score kicks in, which is great. Yeah, da, 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 The reveal. I mean, we can't, you know, it's like, this is one of the great reveals in all of film history. Absolutely. I, you know, like we can go to Luke, I am your father. We can go to the end of Sixth Sense. We can go, you know, these moments. This is like the granddaddy of them all. Mm. And yet this is so filled with complexity and it is thought provoking, you know, in so many deep, deep ways. Like, oh, mm. he was thinking about his sled. Mm. I was thinking about that moment again. That's why I say that scene is the most important scene in the movie. The more I think about this film, mm-hmm. that moment in time, the moment of childhood, the moment of family, the moment of hope, the moment of connection, the moment of joy, of play, yeah. of his and as of his father too, and of the life that he could have had. Right. That's what he's thinking about. Yeah, that's what the sled represents. Yeah, uh, it is his lost childhood. It is what could have been. Um, and what he had created in his mind, the possibility of yeah. a different life than the one he had, which his entire film and in his entire life is rejecting the life he was given. Yeah. I mean, that's a terrible way to exist, yeah. you know, to hate everything about your life that, but try to do something with it. It's a terrible existence. But, and I think this is funny that we see the reveal of the sled after, uh, uh, William Milan's character says, you know, it wouldn't mean anything. It wouldn't mean anything. Yeah. 
so then we as the audience have to make our own decision in that moment. Like, do we think, because for me, it has always meant that this is the key to why Kane became the way he became. And so the so you can sum it up in one word, Rosebud, it makes sense to me. Other people know, and that's fair. That's, well, that's why you're going to have to I think to me it is and it isn't. I think it's, there's no question that it is hugely significant and it teaches us a lot about him. Yeah. I do think on certain levels, Kane's not knowable. You know, like yeah. there's, there's, you know, in the end, you know, we're humans are extremely complicated individuals. Mm -hmm. And what's so interesting is the contrast between the incredible accumulation of stuff and the power that he had and how much control over the world he he did and yet how little control over his own self he had. And as we watch as the end of this film is all of that stuff of life that he accumulated, everything he put so much effort into ends up being pretty meaningless and literally goes up in smoke. Yeah. You know? And we go, as the music, as the clouds go up, we go out to no trespassing. And we go out to the image of the big K and way in the distance, Xanadu and smoke rising up into the air. Mm -hmm. And that is the end of Citizen King. Well... Not quite the end, because now we're going to get these credits, which are actually pretty fun. Yeah. Where we get to see all of our characters, each of them delivering lines of the film. And uh, and the one person that we don't get to see in those credits is Orson, Orson Welles. Welles. Of course. Because he's a very modest person. Of course he is. <laughs> <laughs> Puts himself last on the bill. Yep. Last on the bill. How ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know, we can't, so we've reached the end of the film, but we've not reached the end of the story. Okay. We have to talk about the battle. Okay. This film is going to be released. It's going to go out into Radio City Music Hall. It's going to have a big premiere. But as it's being shot, Mankiewicz gives a copy of the script to a friend from San Simeon who happens to be Marion Davies' nephew, I believe. Luella Parsons, who is the big gossip writer for the Hearst paper, who does not sound like she was a very nice lady, uh, finds out about it. She tells Hearst. And suddenly there is a battle to stop this film for all the reasons we've talked about, including the word Rosebud, the portrayal of Marion Davies, the attacks on Hearst as a person, the portrayal of Hearst. And remember, this is one of the most powerful people in the world Mm -hmm. in terms of media and incredibly powerful in terms of the industry. And he knows everybody's dirty secrets. He knows who's drunk, who's committed crimes, who's having an affair, who's, you know, what, what the studios have covered up. And he goes to all the studio chiefs or has his people go to them and says, if this movie comes out, everything's coming out and I will destroy all of you. And not only that, but he uses, you know, this is, remember, this is 1941 and there's a lot of anti-Semitism and most of Hollywood's run by uh, Jews. And he said, he says, I'm going to portray you as anti-American. I mean, this is exactly the time that, what a shock, like Casablanca is being made where we talked about all the immigrants and Mm -hmm. Warner Brothers bringing in all the immigrants and to work on those films. And he's going, I'm going to show that you are anti-American and that you're bringing in communists and that you're trying to destroy the country. And it is really, really scary. And these really powerful studio chiefs are really, really scared. Mm -hmm. And so they offer RKO, Charles Schaefer, the head of RKO. Louis B. Mayer comes to him and says, the studio heads have gotten together. We will give you $800,000, the cost of making Kane, to destroy every negative, everything ever made of it. It's insane. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing that this could happen to the movie that will be the greatest film largely considered the greatest film ever made yeah. was almost destroyed. Mm-hmm. I and never seen the light of day. It is crazy. Yeah. And, and, and it's not, this comes really, really close to happening. Yeah. Um, Robert wise ends up flying out to New York with a print of the film 
to show it to the the owners, you know, the bankers who mm-hmm. basically own the RKO. Orson Welles goes out, makes a speech to them. Mm-hmm. Robert Wise says it was the greatest performance of Orson Welles' career. Yeah, I'm sure. And he saves the movie. Yeah. And they, and they decide that they're going to release it. Uh, amazing. Mm-hmm. But they're not going to release it like they did before. No. Um, all the Hearst papers and all the radio stations refused. Not only did they refuse to say anything about Wells or Kane, but they say, we're not going to say anything about any RKO picture. Right. And if you put this in your movie theater, we will pull all advertising or all notices of your movie forever. Mm-hmm. So most movie theaters wouldn't play it. It's called censorship. That's what they call this tyrannical censorship. Yep. We see it yep. happening nowadays. And it has ends up having, I mean, can you imagine if like you did a thing about Jerry Zuckerberg mm-hmm. and he said, I'm not, nothing of yours will ever go on Facebook. Right. Like how destructive that would be to your movie today. Yeah. That's what's going on then. And so it has, it plays in a few theaters, very, very limited release. Yeah. It doesn't make any money really. And it goes away. Right. Um, it does get nominated for a bunch of Oscars, uh, including Best Picture, Best Director, Cinematography, Sound Editing, Editing, Art Direction, and Screenplay, and the only and Best Actor for Wells. But the only one it wins is for screenwriting. Yeah, which Wells tried really, really hard to get Mankiewicz's name taken off of it, and of it would just it be him. Yeah, <sighs> hubris of yeah. Wells. This is you know it's, we talked about this before. We mm-hmm. talked about it. I really like him in a lot of ways. Yeah, I sure. I like him, and he's such a horrible person. Mm-hmm. You know, he's so persuasive and charismatic yeah. and, and then he does these things. You're like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. dude, your name's all over that movie. <laughs> Don't kick Mank off the script. Well, I wonder if the scene with Leland and him when he's finishing his review is Wells finishing Mankowitz's script. I'm sure he was. Like in yeah. that way, because maybe Mankowitz, yeah. you know, he's finishing it the way he wanted to finish it. Yeah. I mean, Orson, at a certain point, he he said, Let, I got a great idea. Let's show the movie intense across the yeah, country. Yeah, yeah. We'll do a road yeah, show. Yeah. And RKO wouldn't do it. <laughs> and that's a classic Orson Welles sort of yeah. approach to something. He's a showman. He's a showman. Yep. Um, there's one story I heard Welles tell that I like quite a bit, which is he says, and my, I'm, again, my guess is this is not true, hmm. but I still like the story, is that the premiere of Kane is happening in San Francisco, and he's at the Fairmont Hotel, and he gets onto an elevator, and who walks onto the elevator with him but William Randolph Hearst. Hearst. Yeah. And so he says to him, good evening, Mr. Hearst. You don't know me, but my name is Orson Welles, and I have a little picture called Citizen Kane premiering you know, down the street here. I'd love, here are two tickets. I'd love you to come. Uh, now, did that ever happen? I don't know. But I do love the story. Yeah. And we don't, to this day, know if Hearst or Marion Davies ever actually watched the film. Yeah. We don't know. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I'm, I would put dollars that Donna said they did. That they did. At least she did. Yeah. And uh, RKO, right after that, changed their slogan to showmanship, not genius. Yeah. And this ruined RKO in a lot of ways. Like, you know, RKO went downhill from this point. Mm-hmm. The movie went into the vaults. It didn't really play. Uh, no one really saw it very much. In, in, in 1952, there was a big list put out by the British film critics that listed the greatest films of all time. Citizen King, not on the list. Yeah. Not listed. 1962, it's the number one on that list. Incredible. It's been number one basically ever since. Mm-hmm. So somehow, and I'm kind of curious about that. 
Who first started watching it? Where did it start playing? I thought it was part of the French New Wave. Like that's they, they definitely, discovered I think that's it, one know, of them. Truffaut yeah. and all them like discovered it and put, put, started screening it in France. And then people started, like, through Cannes, through all these kinds of things, yeah. they started like rediscovering the movie. And it's, not even, it's a wonderful life. People, that was a flop and people yep. pushed it away. All of a sudden, it became a Christmas classic 30 years later or whatever. It started to become the process of becoming yeah. a Christmas classic. And so, yeah, well, it's, it, it, it these sort of, things. It, it, you know, and Kate, it makes me wonder like how this comes about yeah you know like that and i think kane is unquestionably a great film and mm-hmm. deserves it but it's also you know sometimes someone has to tell you to check something out right and frame it for you in a certain way for you to appreciate it mm-hmm. you know um well, and, and the question also is steve um since it was shut away and it wasn't shown and people right. didn't speak about it in such reverential tones till the 60s yeah how much of this affected wells like how much was Wells doing? Because like, he did Ambersons right after, right. then does touch, you know he does all these different like films. Is going and then the sixties this happens. Right? How happy is he? See, is he to see this resurface? Get the love it gets, but then he gets compared to it now re- in retrospect because yeah. everyone goes, well, you, none of your films ever matched up to what you did with Kane, so he's to live with that for the next twenty five years. Of Just his life. It sounds horrible. Yeah. Well, it's like funny. there's a moment in there's the documentary on Bob Dylan. The Scorsese documentary. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's a scene in it where uh, Dylan is at a press conference mm-hmm. and he's got his new album after he's gone electric. And someone asks a question. Essentially, they ask the question like, how do you feel about the fact that um, that this isn't nearly as good as your earlier folk <laughs> albums and nobody likes this stuff as much? Right. And it's just a horrible, horrible question. Yeah. You know, because Orson and Bob Dylan's like no this is what I'm doing now. Yeah. That's in the past. It's a purposeful, you know, question to inspire anger. Anger, yeah. Um I think we're have arrived at the place mm-hmm. where you and I are going to have to give our final thoughts. Oh my god. On Citizen Kane. Haven't we given our thoughts so fully about this film already? But I will say this, uh it's a film that is still one that haunts me uh every time I watch it. It is irresistible to me. And it is a film that no matter when I watch it, and even more so recently watching it with Steve, I still find new things about it to love about it, to revere about it, to enjoy about it, to explore about it, more so than any other film I've ever watched. And this includes The Godfather, Seven Samurai, you name it. There is something about this confluence of events or these X factors lining up at the same time to create an incredible film like this. The fact that you talked to me about special effects, the mat, all that kind of stuff is that is the reason why there is an inherent uniqueness and specialness to this film that cannot be overstated. And if you are a lover of film, it is one that reaches inside you and messes you up in certain ways, but stays with you over and over and over again because you sense from just watching it that there's something incredible about this film that you've not seen in any other film before or any other film yeah. after. And that's what uh, still makes it number one for me and incredibly special for me. And uh, it is also Wells at his height, yeah. which is ironic at 24 years old. It is Wells at his grandiose height as an actor, a, a writer, a director, and a producer, uh, and a creator. And... Uh, that cannot be overstated. And so for me, it's a film that captures someone I very much admire uh, at the top of his life, at the top of his career and his game. 
and the film itself just still resonates even in 2017, 2018, uh, with what we see in our daily lives Agreed. from both powerful men and also our interpersonal relationships. Yeah. Yeah. So for me, I would actually, I kind of want to divide my thoughts into two parts. Sure. Um, and part one is, you know, the name of our podcast is The Cinephiles. Mm. And, and to some degree, it's like, I kind of go like, well, what does it mean to be a cinephile? Right. And Citizen Kane is what it means to be a cinephile, yeah. is that the desire to not just experience a piece of entertainment, to not just watch it, and enjoy it, and then walk away, but the desire to come back mm -hmm. and to go back and to go back and to go back and to explore and go deeper and deeper and deeper. And the reason that Citizen Kane represents so perfectly what it is to be a cinephile is that like that mirror shot, it is endlessly deep. Yeah. You know, that you just, we're never, ever going to get to the bottom of this mm -hmm. film. And that means we're never going to get to the bottom of it just technically mm -hmm. in every single shot. How do they do that? The lensing, the lighting, the costume design, the makeup, the composites, the matte paintings, the, you know, the props, the everything, you know, the sound design. Like just on a technical level, we can explore it forever. Yeah. In terms of the world that it's presented against of William Randolph Hearst and the relationship around the film, yeah, we can explore it forever. In terms of Orson Welles and who this mysterious, brilliant, arrogant, egomaniacal, narcissistic, demanding, charismatic genius is yeah. and how he fits both within the film, how he gets the film, and how he somehow predicts things about his own life mm -hmm. we can explore that endlessly yeah. and i haven't talked about the story yet yeah and that's sort of like what i would say is the part two is like how does this movie make me feel yeah. and it makes me feel so much there's so much um hope in it at certain moments there's so much joy in it at certain moments there's so much darkness in it there's so much loss there's so much cruelty mm -hmm. and anger and suppressed rage and in the end a deep and profound sense of loneliness that's how i really yeah. feel at the end of the film is lonely mm -hmm. it you know leland is lonely and susan is lonely and charlie is so lonely alone in that mansion he is so deeply and profoundly alone and this person who is so charismatic and so powerful and so brilliant and who has so much of the power to do anything he wants and he cannot fill the emptiness that exists within his own heart. Mm -hmm. No matter how many statues he buys to fill his house, he cannot fill his heart. And it, and it hurts. And I think this is why I don't go back to the movie as often as you do <laughs> is because it, it really hurts me in yeah. the end. Oh. As much as I like it, it hurts me. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think for me, I come back to it over and over again because it's a cautionary tale of what not to be. Of course. Of what yeah. and how not to end up. And yeah. uh, when I revisit it, it's what I feel. And you're right, Steve. I think you're just saying it now, these very, very powerful words of like remembering the vibrant guy running yeah. the inquiry to what he ends up being. Yeah. This alone man in Kubla Khan, you know, yeah. in the Xanadu place, all alone. Everyone has left him just being pushed around in his uh, rolling chair, you know, and how can don't end up here when you have so much possibility younger at a younger age in your life, you know? So well, yeah. it's funny. And it's the fascination of it. All. I go back again and again to mom's choice. Mm -hmm. And as we said, her, she has her reasons for doing what she does mm -hmm. and she believes she's doing what she does will be the best for Charlie. But the, one of the big lessons for me is 
withholding love is never the right choice. Right. Well, maybe that's not, there are times where maybe it is, but, it, but like what she, the most important thing she had to give him was her love. Yeah. And that's what she didn't give him. But in the end, none of us or a lot of us don't ever get the love that we would like to have from our parents. Oh no, so, it's, it's so, true. So, but you wouldn't prefer nothing. True, but I also take responsibility for my life, and that is agreed. And that's what I and, I and I think that's what your point is great. But I also want to say the from my perspective, he's a grown up. Yeah, absolutely. Right, he could have done the work to find that love, to fix himself, to do whatever he needs to do, all those kinds of things. But of course, it's nineteen forty one or it's nineteen whatever it is. How prevalent is his possibility to do that? Well, and that's why it's a cautionary I tale. Mean, it's, I a hundred percent agree. And this is the thing bad shit happens to you as a kid that yeah. might form some of the negative stuff sure. in your life. But at a certain point when you're a grown up, you and particularly when you're the most powerful grown ups in the world, yeah. <laughs> because he's going out doing his own damage yeah. to all sorts of people exactly. around him. Yeah. Um, well, listen, if you stuck with us this far, thank you. You have found out what we think of Citizen Kane. Yeah. Honestly, I think we still could talk another five hours. At about least. This movie. Um, but we would love to hear what you think, particularly if this is your first experience with this film. Yeah. You know, I would say welcome to the cinephiles and welcome to Citizen Kane if that's the case. I would love to hear what it's like the first time you watch it. Yeah. And some people don't like it when the first time they watch it, I by don't... the way. It's not... It's not always the easiest, but we would love to hear what you think. You can visit us on our Facebook page at The Cinephiles. Um, you can subscribe to us on YouTube, on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Spotify, on TuneIn. Leave us some comments on YouTube. We love reading them. Leave us reviews on iTunes. They're really, really important to the show. Yep. They really make a big difference in terms of people finding us on iTunes, which is the number one place that you can find us. Mm -hmm. uh, if you want to buy Citizen Kane or any other movie we've ever talked about, you can do it on our website, cinephiles.net. If you want to support the show we really appreciate the support patreon.com slash the cinephiles you can pick movies that we're going to review we list we release other audio stuff that's totally exclusive to patreon yep. and some of them are really good we got a one coming up on the a to z theory that's coming out <laughs> soon that's pretty interesting yeah. um as always you can reach me at sr morris on twitter john where can they reach you uh, you can reach me at the roca says on twitter and on instagram and yeah give me your thoughts you guys who've followed me on numerous other shows and podcasts you know how much i revere citizen kane how much i revere orson wells so it, like steve said if it's your first time listening or watching it uh i look forward to hearing your thoughts of what your reactions to the film are and i will happily have banter with you guys on dm about it um and we're not done with the movie no next week the month of kane continues with our first ever full commentary track of the yeah. film we are going to do the entire you can get your blu-ray or your dvd or your <laughs> itunes download or whatever and if you hit play when john says hit play you'll hear us talk through the whole movie that's yeah. coming up next week yeah yeah so that's it for this week next week you'll have the commentary track of citizen kane on the cinephiles <laughs>